podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast in association with Charles Tirrett. Want to work on your golf swing in comfort or head to the cricket in the summer wearing something sharp? Charles Tirrett has a collection of smart, casual menswear, perfect for cricketers, professional and novice alike. Use the code WISDOM10 and you can get an extra 10% off on their online sale. If it's good enough for Joss Butler, it's good enough for us. Australia have retained the ashes just as you thought it couldn't get much worse for England, it did, and then some. Australia's 267 is the lowest score to win by an innings in Test cricket this century. It's their 12th win in the last 13 Ashes tests held in Australia, a humiliating three days in Melbourne for Joe Root's men. I'm Yazrana, and with me over Zoom this morning, the, the morning after the night before, to make sense of it all and wonder where England go next, is the Editor-in-Chief of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker, and former England batter, Mark Butcher. First off, Phil, um, an update on your physical health. I won't ask about your emotional well-being just yet, but how's the cron? I'm uh, feeling a bit grotty, um, but hopefully coming out the other side. But you can't, you can't divorce the one from the other. Um, I woke up this morning feeling, feeling like shit, frankly, but it, it can't be uh, un, unattached to, to that, that devastating shambles that I saw last night. Um, I have to be honest, I, I didn't watch a massive amount of the, the Adelaide Test match because after two days, I felt really sad. But I've watched far too much of this last one. Far too much. And it's definitely dragging me into the realms of the unwell. Let's put it that way. Yeah, you're not alone, I'm sure. Um, mm. Let's jump straight into it. Butch, England have lost a lot in Australia over the years. Um, but yeah. Have you seen anything quite as submissive as what you've seen over days, particularly days one and three there at the MCG? I don't think I've ever seen batting as bad. Um, but then watching, um, watching first-class cricket during, over the course of last summer, I'd say exactly the same thing, completely different circumstances and different sort of quality and, uh, of opposition and different um, uh, intensity in terms of uh, competition. But um, I, I wondered, and having a sort of a, a WhatsApp chat with, with the old man over over the last week or so, I wondered as to whether it, it, people talk a lot about the sort of the gap or the, the difference between county cricket and, and test match cricket. And I and and from personal experience, that gap has always been a very big one. It's always been pretty large. But I do wonder if the uh, the, the guys currently playing um, for England at the moment are not only coming up against a, a gap that is large and always pretty much has been. But have gone have gone into this series um, more ill-equipped um, than any other um, team before it to cope with the demands of high-quality quick bowling um, on Australian pitches, and I think that's the, the saddest part of it for me. Um, you can talk about sort of selection. You can sort of you can pluck a few names out of the air. Um, you can talk about uh, the, the type of bowlers that are successful in the county cricket as against what you come up against in Test matches, but fundamentally. The, the basic techniques of all, but, um, but Joe Root and to a, a slightly lesser extent, Ben, ben Stokes, or to, to quite a lot lesser extent, Ben Stokes, actually, um, are just so, so poor uh, that it's, um, it's not surprising 
that this this uh, this team or this sort of selection, this current selection of, of England Test match players um, have collapses sort of one every you know every every third innings. Um, there's a massive implosion and they get knocked over for next to nothing. And so there is an inevitability about it, which kind of tempers any um, sort of anger or sadness really in, in what's gone on over the last couple of days. Mm. Um, yeah, inevitable is a word that people use a lot. Phil, how frustrating has it been that it's not just the guys who might not be ready at this stage of their career to do battle against this sort of attack in Australia? It's not just them who struggled, but it's almost it's pretty much everyone's underperforming the bat. Only Milan is performing above his career average. Even Root is down about 10 runs per dismissal and is Norman. It would be as frustrating as anyone with the way he got out, particularly in the first innings. I think he talks about parking away that dab to third man before the tour. That, sh- that shot's proven to be his downfall again. Um, it's pr- everything that could have gone wrong with the batting has gone wrong. How frustrating is that? Well, it's maddening, isn't it? For, for everybody, not least inside that dressing room. Um, it- there's no question that the pain will be very real and the embarrassment will be very real. Uh, and it's not just felt inside that dressing room, it's felt in our own front rooms and it's also felt across the game as well because when England play Australia, you have two cultures at one another. It's not just two teams of 11. Um, and the inevitable questions and the necessary questions that flow from all of this, from the latest humiliation, have to be broad and widespread questions. They have to be addressing the whole coaching culture of the game, the whole attitudinal culture of the game. Um, there are going to be manifold, myriad theories that are going to be flying around, and, and we can throw a few more around today by all means. Um, but this feels, to me, uh, more acute than at any other time. And maybe I'm a bit sleep deprived, right? And maybe I'm just a bit sad and I've got the plague. But this feels to me like the, the tipping point to end all tipping points. We've gone to Australia before and been turned over badly. Um, if you take it back to 10-11, we haven't got close to winning, winning a test match in Australia since 10-11. Um, that is an astonishing state of affairs when you're taking it back to 11 years back, when we went out there and we thought that our game, through two divisions, through central contracts, through prioritising the Red Bull game, through pitches that you could actually score runs on in county cricket and all the rest of it, that we were developing, admittedly with a bit of help from South Africa, we were developing the core of a culture that is sustainable. Since then, it has fallen off a cliff. Um, And... As I say, we're all going to be throwing around a million theories and quite right too. But this needs a real kind of root and branch um, structural analysis and some honesty as well. Some honesty from people who are calling the big shots. But people need to come up in front of a camera and say to people why so much emphasis is put on white ball cricket, for example. People need to make the kind of socioeconomic argument for it. And then people might go, okay, right, well, if we don't have that in the height of summer, then where's the money coming from? And so on and so on. But there is so much obfuscation, so much hiding behind inept half-excuses and painful management speak from certain people. We, we still pick the right team. We've just got to eliminate, you know, execute our skills, all that bollocks. There has to be root and branch cultural change right from the top. And there has to be a kind of glasnost approach, right? No more lying, no more cover-ups, no more pretending everything's rosy in the garden when it's clearly not from, root, from top to bottom. We went back, uh, uh, I know Phil's um, gone in quite hard on this over the last couple of days, but I remember 
um, during the podcast when it was first announced that, that Chris Silverwood was going to have every single job under the sun. And I said it was nonsense then. We'll use Phil's word. It was bollocks then. It's bollocks now. Um, it, you know, Joe Root, I'm afraid we've given him an enormous amount of, um, of leeway as a captain over, over the years because he's such a magnificent, magnificent batsman. But as a captain, he just is not the man for this, these times. England needs somebody like Nasser Hussain, who's going to be clear, clear-eyed, not only about what happens in terms of his own team and his own performance and the type of players and characters that he wants in that team, but he also has to be somebody that has the guts to stand up to the, to the ECB, and say, ECB and say, no, this is what I want. This is what my team needs. This is how we're going to go about trying to win the Ashes back. And let's face it, we, we kind of take the mickey about the sort of the, the emphasis that's placed upon the Ashes. But if it isn't the Ashes, it's the only one, it's the only series that matters. Home and away, right? Always has been. Everybody gets judged on it. English cricket gets judged on what happens in the Ashes. And quite frankly, we've been utterly abysmal. Mm. In this series, the last series down there, um, you know, 5-0 is, is not, looking like, not looking like something you could have a little sort of nervous chuckle about. It's looking like an absolute certainty. Um, and the game, as far as Red Bull cricket is concerned at home, is in an absolute disgraceful mess. Yeah. It's a disgrace. I mean, yeah. I, I finished my last, my last commentary stint of the summer on the 2nd of October at Lords in a match when the leaves were falling off the trees and it was freezing cold. You know, that, that's, what, that's, that's the, the importance of county cricket. It's been pushed to the point where you're playing it in the snow in, in springtime um, and in, with brown leaves sloshing around your feet in the end, at the end of the summer. It's absolute nonsense. Mm. I, I don't think we're being too reactionary at all. I think it's worth laying out just how bad this problem has been for, for quite a long time. It's, it's definitely not a problem <coughs> confined to this series alone. So in, in 2021, mm. England have been bowled out for under 213 times in 15 tests. England have been bowled out for under 106 times in the last four years. Since the start of 2018, England are more likely to be bowled out for less than 150 than reach 370. That's mad. Of the 17 top seven batters to debut in the last six years, none averaged 32. 17 batters, no one averages 32. 11 average between 27 and 32. Three between 24 and 27, and three below 20. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about Silverwood and Root later, this goes so much deeper than that. There's an excellent piece on Crick Buzz on all this by, by Rob Johnson, who speaks to Paul Farbrace, who until 2019 was England assistant coach and is a director of cricket at Warwickshire. He said, I think we've got too many batsmen in county cricket that have got techniques that are flawed. There are many quirky techniques in English cricket. People have got too quirky, too funky. You know this idea of bats going off stump, bats coming down from gully with three or four movements before the ball is bowled? There's too many people that haven't got the temperament to bat for long periods of time. I think our coaching has got lazy in the world. <clears throat> coaching in England has gone away from instilling basics in young players to actually saying, play your game, play the way you want to play. It's a cop-out because coaches are not strong enough. They're not working hard enough to instill the basics in our young players. And as I say, there are too many players at the ages of 15, 16. The techniques ingrained into them are not good enough. Coaches have let them get away with it because they want to be their friend. They want to be nice to them and they want to encourage them to hit the ball well. Um, that's, that's pretty hard-hitting stuff from someone who's involved with England so recently. Phil, what are you going to say? Um, I just want to add something on that. I thought it was a really, really excellent piece, uh, by the way, by Rob. Um, we've, through the magazine, we've spoken to similar people to Paul Firebrace and Paul Firebrace himself. Um, we've spoken to 
uh, various coaches within the game over the last last few few months in particular. In in July, actually, we ran a front cover story that ran over 12 pages, England's Red Bull crisis. So th- this is not reactionary. Um, uh, and in that piece, which I which I painfully read, reread this morning, um, there was a quote that jumped out at me. Now, we're talking about the culture of English cricket here. We're talking about the coaching culture of English cricket, right? This piece I wrote, it's called, it was called, it's technique stupid, right? Um, and I spoke to Alan Butcher, of course, the Magus himself, um, who said, well, he said he's felt like a dinosaur for the last 20 years. And Mark will obviously know exactly what I'm talking about here because Alan has said, and he's one of the most respected batting coaches in the country. Um, and he said, whenever he's opened his mouth in the last 10, 15 years, he's always felt like he's a dinosaur for thinking that people with good techniques have got a far better chance of succeeding. It sounds straightforward. It is straightforward. And yet, it's become so garbled right from the bottom upwards, right? Now, listen to this quote. This is from a chap called John Neal, who heads up the ECB's coaching education program. So he's in charge of bringing coaches through from the grassroots level all the way up to the county level. He said to me, the further up you go, the less you should be telling people what to do. It's a bit like me saying to Joe Root, well, your left foot is in the wrong place. Joe would probably work that out for himself. Your job there is to facilitate him and to help him to understand. Now, on a very, very low level, there's some kind of logic in that, okay? Although it's flimsy and I don't necessarily agree with it. But when you're bringing people through, at kind of level one level, for sure, learn, you know, hit the ball, enjoy it, then we can refine it from there on in. But that is a problem that goes right to the bottom, right to the whole grassroots setup. If you are not instilling the fundamental basics, or if, if as a coach you don't have the confidence to tell a child or a young player or a teenager what to do, and if instead you choose this kind of holistic approach of developing people and personalities rather than developing how to actually play the game, the hardest technical game that was ever ever built in the history of the world, then those two schools of thought are clearly, they are at loggerheads with one another. And at the risk of, you know, sounding like, well, back in our day, it was, this is how we were doing it. You only have to watch for an hour or two to see that techniques, even at the top, top level now, have become so garbled and so confused and so higgledy-piggledy that bats are coming down from here and backlifts are coming around the back of your head and all the rest of it. The game, when you're facing 145 clicks in Australia, the game has to be simplified to the bare basics, to the, the necessities of batting that have stood the test of time for 100 years and more. Bush, do you agree with Farbrace's take there? And, and, if, and if so, why do you think that's happened? Well, I, I do, but I, the, bit, the reason I, I laughed a couple of times was because Paul Farbrace is involved in all of this stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's all, it's all very well for him to kind of to come out and, and be hard-hitting and come out with all these stuff, but he's been, in, he's been in it. He's been at the very top of the tree. So, you know, what were you doing to stop all this while you were, while you were involved in it? And I, I, I'm not having a go at Paul. I, 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 I admire and respect him, but for crying out loud, you know, I, I know I know the stuff you're talking about when it comes to kids because I've I've recently become involved in a in a in a coaching um, setup myself down in down in Croydon here, and <clears throat> we, we've asked for we've asked for clubs and schools to send to send kids that are on recommendation really is sort of like being your your best and, and brightest and most talented, um, and and we have found that we've had to go back to to, to year dot grip stance backlift 
um, and hammer that over the course of many weeks in order to get them to a point where you could actually do something a little bit more, little bit more advanced. And dare I say it from their point of view, a little bit more interesting. So look, I, I completely agree, but, I, but, I, but I'm sorry, I have to, my, my cynic head um, sort of swells and, and, and the red light goes off a little bit when people who are actually involved in it come out talking about the problems that people on the outside have been talking about for ages as if there was nothing that they could have done to stop it. And the reason why I mentioned Root and Silverwood at the very beginning of this chat is because NASA came up against a very similar situation in terms of, in terms of when his captaincy started. The team were the worst team in the world. I was involved at the time. We'd beaten South Africa at home, but we'd been smashed by Australia or whatever ever since, although, albeit never 5-0, um, I hasten to add. Um, <laughs> um, and, and, and it took a very, very strong pairing at the top of the, of the actual playing game. Not the, not the administrative game, not the coaching game, not the selectorial game. The two guys whose jobs would be on the line, i.e. Silverwood and Root, i.e. Fletcher and Hussain, to go, no, this stops now. Mm. And that's why I mentioned them so early. It's not their fault. I'm not saying that it's entirely down to them that the English game, Red Bull game, that is, is on its knees. But if you're going to stop it, it's going to take a couple of, of giants um, a couple of people who have the personality not to stand in front of the camera and go, well, we can take the positives here. We've just lost three there and we've bowled out for 60 um, in front of the cameras. Um, people are going to face and talk some hard truths themselves. Um, and, you know, I, I, I sort of look at, I've been looking down at sort of like some of the numbers. You, you talk about the thing that Mark Rampakash was saying in terms of the, 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 the worries that a county batter has. Look, Luke Fletcher topped the averages at, 66 wickets are under, under 15 this year. Chris Rushworth, top bowler, top bloke. Chris Rushworth, same. Top bowler, top fella, top pro. 59 wickets at 18. Tim Murta, 58 wickets at 14. Sam Cook, 58 wickets at 14. Right? That's the way our game is at the moment in terms of county cricket, the types of pitches you're playing on. And so the, the batters, um, you know, the batters' worries, as, as Mark Rambrakesh um, uh, mentioned this morning are absolutely true. They're worried about these guys bowling sub 80 miles an hour, nibbling it all over the place. However, still stand more chance if your bat is coming down straight and you're moving in straight lines forward and backwards and not standing in front of all three stumps and giving the batters two metres of, 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 um, of leeway in terms of their line, um, the making runs, than, than coming up with some bizarre idea of standing in front of all three. Now, coaches have allowed that. Dog throwers have allowed that because these, these bloody things that only make the ball move inwards um, through the air kind of give batters the idea that they can protect their off stump because the ball is only coming in at them. Um, you know, when cricket balls, funnily enough, move both ways, as we've seen, and even straight balls are a, a, a bloody lethal, um, given the techniques that we're seeing a lot of the players using. Um, and so it's just the, the, the whole thing has been driving me nuts for ages. I got called a dinosaur as well during the, during the course of last summer because of the debate we had about batting technique. And yet the whole thing comes home to roost. And in the, in the meantime, England have got probably their greatest ever batter and their greatest ever bowler playing in this team at the moment, by the way. Just, just think about that for a second. Greatest ever batter, greatest ever bowler, modern era anyway batter. And they cannot get anywhere near this Australian team in which a 32-year-old, you know, you talk about medium paces nibbling it around a bit. Well, what's, what's Scott Boland if he's not one of those? So he should have been brilliant at that, right? <laughs> it's just... So it needs, it needs, 
it needs strong it needs strong people who have got who have got very very strong and very very clear ideas about the way the game of cricket should be played right yeah absolutely i mean in in 2021 root averages 61 with the bat anderson 21 with the ball and england are still uh, they they equal Bangladesh's <laughs> world record today with nine defeats in the county. nine nine um, losses yeah yeah uh, I guess going back to going back to Rob's article, I guess what's depressing, particularly depressing, from what Farbrace is saying, and if it's true, if, if what he's saying is right, and coaching coaching problems go so far down that it's you know the fundamental levels when players are fourteen, fifteen, then you won't actually see the the improvement at international level for ages. The lag time between those kids understanding the game properly. Oh. To- international game is, is, is massive well no but you but look we, we have the resources in terms of in terms of professional cricketers and in terms of in terms of money in terms of financial resources for this not to be the case I mean you know the, the guys guys playing professional batters knocking around in the country at the moment are as, as gutted about all of this as we are you know they're, they're struggling their, 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 their balls off to try and make runs and to try and sort of get their careers moving in the right place you give them pitches that are half decent to bat on and and you suddenly you'll find players who have got who who will who will have less quirky techniques who will find um, who will be able to bat for a day a day and a half and score big runs. You know the the guys were talking about it on the TV last night. If you, if you think something's got your number on it every single time you walk out to bat, thirty off twenty balls is a good innings. I mean that's you know that that, that mentality is getting us killed in a or at least not that mentality that 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 lack of. Um, application being rewarded is getting us killed at test match level because that you know that you can't if you can't work out why it is that you can't that you can't bring the back down straight or that you can't sort of sit in and be patient for for three or four hours waiting for the waiting for the game to get a little bit easier then it's no no doubt that you're going to go searching after balls that you shouldn't be playing at because you want to see the scoreboard moving you're jittery you're nervous about the fact that you're sitting there and the bowlers are building up pressure Mm. Um, you know, that, but that's the game, isn't it? I mean, that's you know, it's five days test matches. It's a hell of a long time, and building that kind of that kind of muscle memory, that resilience, that idea that you can be rewarded for sitting in and being able to leave the ball well, and all those types of things, needs to be something that these guys get used to feeling when they're playing at the level below. Totally echo that. Um, it put me in mind actually going back to this thing that we ran in the magazine a few months ago. We, we got a, we had a brief interview with Marlis Labashane when he was at Glamorgan um, and incidentally getting his front pad blown off by Darren Stevens every, every other week. But he said something interesting to us um, and I've just actually picked it out again. He said in England, the mental aspect of batting isn't utilized as much. If you're scoring runs in England, this is the key bit. If you're scoring runs in England, you're probably scoring at 70 runs per hundred balls. Reason? Because the swinging ball and quick outfields create scoring opportunities in Australia. It's a grind. These are his words. Scoring at 50 per 100 balls and leaving a lot of balls because of the bounce. There are two challenges. One is about mental application and the other is the technical challenge. Now, this is an interesting idea to me that we've always in our heads said, well, if you get in in Australia, then you can go big. But what you're actually seeing is the kind of almost like the, the, the inversion of that idea that it's actually tough to bat in Australia, deliberately tough to bat in Australia, because these are proper cricket wickets, proper cricket pitches. Whereas <clears throat> in England, it's a, it's a combination of technique, attitude, playing at strange times, playing too much, squares being tired, groundsmen not having the time to turn a pitch into, into what they want. 
obviously result pitches being required with promotion and relegation and all the rest of it. And you throw all of these things into the mix and what it results in is what Mark says. A batter goes out, who's probably trailing three or four low scores anyway and thinking, right, well, if I can get to 30-odd, you never know, I might even get to 45. And then, you know, then I'm in for next week. Players going out and saying, right, today's my day, the sun's shining, today's my day, and I'm going to really bed down. Those days are long gone, and we have the stats. You know, runs, run scoring in the championship has gone through the floor, and we ha- I have these stats right in front of me. I'm not going to bore you with them, but we all know it. And, well, uh, yeah, can, can, I ch- can I chime in a oh, second? Yeah. Because I, the inter- interesting, because you know, you know where I found the hardest place to bat in Australia? Adelaide. Right. I found I found Adelaide very very difficult because unless unless everything unless everything was working particularly well in terms of in terms of your timing your footwork you had, you really had to, to to hit the ball in Adelaide you couldn't you didn't get any angles if the bowler bowlers bowled straight enough and the ball didn't swing or didn't move off the seam you weren't sort of inside inside half of the batting it for one or you know running it down to third man or whatever it would be the boundary, straight boundaries are really long. You had to really kind of be on top of your game in order to make the scoreboard move in Adelaide, if the bowlers were if the bowlers were patient enough. And you know, at, at Brisbane, funnily enough, I found a much easier place to bat than, than Adelaide because there was more speed, there was more sort of bounce. You could you could work the angles a little bit more. Um, you know, it, it wasn't as necessary to kind of be to get yourself miles forward or miles back in order to create scoring opportunities. So what he says is absolutely right. Um, and one of the best innings I saw actually in Australia. I'm sorry if this goes goes a little bit off piece. Was Langer got double hundred in the 99 uh, series down there, right? It was forty eight degrees. We had the old northerly wind coming in, and you couldn't keep moisture in your eyeballs. Like blinking was was painful down there. And he got two hundred over the course of a day and a half. And it was a, it was a stunning innings. It really was. I didn't want to tell him because you know because it's Justin Langer, but it was a stunning <laughs> innings. You know, we didn't bowl crap. We just could, we couldn't make the ball move sideways. He didn't want to get out. We we weren't allowing him to score quickly or anything. But he just ground out an incredible, incredible knot. And that that, that Manus Labuschagne is talking about absolutely, absolutely rings true to me. One hundred percent. Sorry, carry on. Right, uh, we're going through quite a few uh, macro issues. Um, Phil, I, I kind of took the piss out of you after the first test match when you said that you were angry. But there is a lot of anger out there. Um, I, one, was mildly irked during the first inning for sure. But I think that general anger is because there's a sense among fans that they care more about test cricket than the ECB does. And, and maybe even some of the, of the players do. For, for a lot of cricket fans, English cricket fans, this is their Football World Cup. Uh, a lot would stay up to watch an Ashes series in Australia, but not for a 50-over World Cup in Australia. You still get packed houses for test matches in England. And it feels like we've, we've kind of sleep walked into this situation. The warning signs have been there for a while, but nothing's been, nothing quite as dramatic as, as the last few days have happened. Um, so on what the ECB have been doing, what they can do, first off, where do, you think they've, where do you think they've gone most wrong? When people talk about, specifically, I guess, the prioritisation of white ball cricket is something that's levelled at them quite a lot. What specifically do you think they've gone uh, and done too far in that direction? What do you think is a, a fixable solution for the short to medium term? This is the key question. And, and yet I don't have a succinct answer for you. I really don't. Um, there are so many elements to it. Uh, it's it's simplistic to say we need to play more cricket in the heart in the heart of summer. Of course it is, but it would be useful. 
it would certainly be useful. It would be useful for groundsmen and it would be useful for batsmen. Uh, so that would help. Um, have the ECB prioritised white ball cricket? Well, we play more red ball cricket than any other country in the world by miles. So if, if we are talking about developing players, in inverted commas, then they have more chance to play red ball cricket than anywhere else by miles. Dan Lawrence, I remember at the start of the New Zealand tour um, last spring, had a look at Henry Nichols and Dan Lawrence who were batting in the same position and there was six years difference between the two of them. And Dan Lawrence had played more first-class games than Henry Nichols had. And yet Henry Nichols was 30 and Dan Lawrence was 24. And um, we play a lot, but the question the is... the wrong type. Exactly, exactly <laughs> that. It's a, it's, it's a diminishing returns. Rather than improving your, your game, you are instead just imbe- imbuing these kinds of draining habits and this sense of the grind just getting to you. And so it results in a kind of mental flimsiness, I think, and a frailty and a lack of love for it as well. And I think all of that sort of plays its part. The one, the one specific thing, sorry, come to you in a, in a second, Mark. The one thing about the ECB not, not caring about Ashes cricket is nonsense. They, they understand, and whether it's a cynical money-driven thing or not, but they still know that Test cricket generates more money than any other form of the game in England. We're unique in that. We love the thing, and we want to protect the thing at all costs as a culture. I don't think there's an issue there. But I think in their mania to find some new avenues of, of revenue and income and new levels of popularity, and I have a lot of respect for that challenge, because I've done the numbers and I've written a lot about this over the years. I have a lot of respect for that. But I think in their mania to get to that point, I think um, something has been lost down the line. Uh, and so, we've, we've, as we know, we've pushed these things to the margins a little bit too much, I would say. Uh, but I would hesitate to throw the book at the ECB because they are, they are running a very, very, very challenging job here. And there are so many levels to it. This is not a game that was as, pop, as popular now as it used to be. And that is a huge existential challenge that the game has to face. They've tried to um, develop a greater sense of t- cohesion at the bottom, but it's, influenced, it's, it's created havoc at the top. In the old days, it was the other way around. Under Lord McLaurin and all the rest of it, at the turn of the century, if we had an OK England side, then it didn't matter that, that we were losing the grassroots. It didn't matter that numbers were going through the floor in terms of player participation or the rest of it. They are slowly, belatedly trying to address the fundamental reason for why we play cricket in this country. But right at the top, the cherry on the top has gone off. Um, related to that, Bush, I read a piece in the Cricketer the other day uh, by Nick Friend, who wrote that in a game last year, Sussex fielded 10 privately educated cricketers. Um, and, you know, we're, we're talking about the, 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 the talent pool they're going to have available to them. And if um, overwhelming percentage of county cricketers are privately educated, that's by definition limiting the number of cricketers, the number of potential athletes you have at your disposal. Yeah. How, how, how big a problem is that for cricket? And obviously that's not something you can fix overnight, but this is something that's been slowly happening. It's been moving in one direction for a very long time now. Yeah, well, it's, it's a 30-odd-year 30, 30 um, uh, slide that's been, isn't it? And that's not cricket's problem. Uh, I mean, sorry, it is cricket's problem, but it's not cricket's fault. Yeah. Um, the, the, the state school system simply does not have the time, space, resource, or frankly interest in, in a lot of quarters to even play cricket, to have cricket be, be part of the conversation. So where else are you going to get your players from? 
is that I suppose is the question. Um, uh, turning that around, you know, I, I know that um, you know clubs are doing their very best, but they're fighting for their own survival. They're trying their very best to kind of bring um, bring kids through. They rely on volunteers. People aren't, don't get paid to go and coach kids on a Tuesday and Thursday night and run teams and all the rest of it. Um, and so, and so, as a consequence of that, the, the people that come through in a system that is not um, uh, paid for by their parents. Um, a few and far between, uh, and that's and those are just they're just the facts of the matter. I think that you know, I don't blame cricket for that. It's the circumstances that have, that have been led to by a succession of governments taking sport out of schools. Um, and if you're if you're taking funding away from from uh, from the the private or the public sector, um, you know the, the things that are more difficult, the things that require more resource, and the things that require more time are going to be the first things that bite the dust. And guess what? That that means cricket. Mm. Um, I just just going back to something that, that Phil mentioned there about you know the the love of the love of the game or the white ball game or the the white ball game versus the red ball game, and the and the numbers that the number of first class matches that, that English players get to play over the course of their careers. Again, I, I think I've probably mentioned this before, but just look at in look at it, India's top two batters. Rohit at the moment is not playing. But um, K.L. Rahul has just made 130 down in South Africa opening the batting. K.L. Rahul, who also happens to score, you know, 15 ball 50s opening the batting in IPL cricket. It is not, it's a fallacy that, that these guys can't do both of these things. It really is. You know, if you te- technically they are, we saw them back during the summer against Anderson and Broad and Co. In, in English conditions and saw how adept they were playing for their off stump and technically correct they were. Um, so they can go from doing it like that to to play to batting with a strike rate of 200 in the short form game because fundamentally they have very very sound techniques. Um, you know, these the two things are not mutually exclusive. You can, you can play all forms of the game based around um, some decent basics of having your back come down straight. <laughs> you know. Um, so sorry, sorry. Again, I veered off, but but Phil. No, no, no. It keeps it keeps sparking me off. And it's, you know, the thing is that all of these things in, in, the cur- in the current system we have with the amount of players that we have, and again, I go back to the resource that the ECB and English cricket has over and above New Zealand, over and above, um, every, well, over above everybody but India, I suppose. There is no reason why things should be as bad as they are. There really isn't. There really isn't. But priorities have been so, so skewed. And dare I say it, people making big decisions about what happens in terms of the way the game is played and not cricket. They're not cricket people. If you allow the bean counters to make decisions based upon, you know, what the type of formats, when you should be playing, what happens when, how much cricket there is, etc., then you end up in a situation where the players don't, players frankly don't have any idea what's going on from one season to the next. And I, and I feel sorry for them for that. That moves quite well on um, our first question from a listener. Danny asks, what are Australia and New Zealand doing well, which has made them so much better than England at old school test cricket? Phil, do you want to have a go on that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. Um, and again, as all of this, there aren't any obvious immediate answers. Sorry, so I, think, so I think it's a really good question because a lot of the criticisms that's been levelled at the ECB, these are problems in, well, problems in inverted commas in other countries as well. You know, other players in other yeah. countries are playing loads of white ball cricket, etc. You know, it's just happening in England. Which is, which is why this, which is why none of these problems are insurmountable. Exactly, exactly. 
New Ze- what have New Zealand done? New Zealand decided to play on, on pitches that, were, that had more bounce and carry in them. That's what they did. That's what they did. Australia, the pitches have kind of always... They had a little bit of a wobble where they, where they kind of were trying to bed in um, uh, the big bash and sort of uh, shield cricket uh, took a little bit of a back seat to that and they, they were up in arms about what was happening to the quality of shield cricket, what was happening to the quality of their batsmanship. But in the end, they kind of, they righted it because, you know, for, for, it worked for 50 years prior to that. And so they just went back to what they were doing before. Um, they experimented playing with Duke's balls. They did all these weird, weird and wonderful things and, and found that the batters couldn't score any runs and it was affecting their bottom line in terms of test match cricket. So they reversed it and went back to how they'd always done it. Make the yeah. bowlers work for make the bowlers work for their wickets. Make spin play a major part in what you do, um, and 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 have batters. You know, if they have the application and the, the mental um, the mental strength and the technique allied with it, will be able to average um, you know high forties, fifties, maybe sixties if they if they're good enough. And that's and that's how their cricket. That's how they did. That's how they duffed us up all the way through the all the way through the nineties until two thousand and five by having an absolute phalanx of batters averaging 60 plus who couldn't get in the team and bowlers who could and bowlers who could hit a pinhead like Pat Cummins this is bang on it does remind me actually how how envious I used to be when I was following cricket when you were playing Mark and looking at the Sheffield Shield versus the championship and seeing how in in the Shield you play once every two weeks and obviously you'd only have six teams anyway and so the, the concentration of talent was very clear you were facing quality and you were playing alongside quality week after week. But crucially, you weren't playing, you weren't batting every other day against the Red Bull. And so if you, you know, if, if you get cleaned up on Tuesday, then it doesn't matter because you've got another go on a Thursday afternoon. In Australia, you would be playing every couple of weeks. And so you turn up there and the pitches are, as we know, and the, the conditions are there for you. You're going to be fighting tooth and nail because that is a big, big moment for you in your first-class career. Whereas in England, it sounds a bit paradoxical, but the more we play, in certain cases, the, the, the uglier it gets. And so, and, and you imagine what it's like mentally, and you can tap into this, Mark, you know, when, when you were going through a bit of a trot, say, a bit of a bad trot, playing for Surrey back in the day and so on, it becomes just relentless, right? And it becomes almost kind of it sucks any kind of real jeopardy and emotion from the occasion because there's just so much of it, one after the other, after the other. They're not events as they are in Australia. Mm. That makes sense? Yeah. yeah, it makes sense. And um, we, we used to have exactly those conversations. It's not, not something that has, <laughs> has not been noted throughout, throughout the entire 20 years that I played. Um, it did get better, though. I mean, this is the thing that... that the, the, the most frustrating thing about all of this is that we've we've seen we've seen what happens when you do it right. You know, we were the number one test side ten years ago. We had we, again we had batters coming out of our ears. We had you know we've still got well. The, 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 I suppose the most um, the most extraordinary thing is that those two bowlers are still playing. You know, <laughs> those two guys are still playing. Um, but we we know how to do this. We know how to do this and you know win win T Twenty World Cups. And, you know, we, we've just, you know what I'm saying? That New Zealand are, are world test champions and they've just reached the last two world finals in white ball cricket. But, but none of this stuff is mutually exclusive. You can do all of these things. And I dare say that we are, in terms of, again, in terms of physical resource, albeit they're all posh, um, <laughs> 
and I, you know, I went to I went to private school as well. I was very very fortunate because of um, various circumstances that happened in the in the in my uh, in in my parents' youth. Um, that, to be able to get to be privately educated as well. All right, so Mark, you, sort of, you wear your privilege very lightly, mate. It's fine. Well, well, it's you know, that's <laughs> how it happened. My old man was a PE teacher at a very forward-thinking, forward-thinking school, and therefore, I got the chance to um, to have the the the, for, the facilities and all that kind of stuff. Um, so you know, it, oh, sorry, I've lost my lost my thread now. Um, where where? None of these things are insurmountable for English cricket. We we do we have all of these things. We're just we're just misusing them in a, to a, to an extraordinary extent. There is this weird sense of um, almost closure. It can't get any worse than this. And the the, the, the cat's out of the bag now. There's no place anymore for excuses or sort of equivalents or anything like that that no one in the corridors of power can look down the lens of a camera at any point from here on in and say things are okay. You can't. And so there is that sense now that we're almost starting again from scratch. And so Didn't we have this after 1780. We did. And we, we had it after 067, <laughs> the Schofield report rolled in you know, a year and a half after we'd, we'd won the ashes in 05. So for sure we do go round and round and round, but it feels like it's more necessary now than it has been in a long, long time. It feels like, as I said right at the start, this feels more, more of an existential question about English cricket than it's, than it's felt in previous years. Yeah, this is, this is definitely worse. Go back to the Test match itself. Um, Joe Root didn't quite get Mohamed Yusuf's record for the most runs in a calendar year. He finished third eventually with uh, 1,708 runs just behind Viv's 1,710 in 1976. Uh, he scored a staggering 1,178 runs more than England's next highest scorer in 2021, Rory Burns. A great stat, great stat from Dave Tickner, by the way. Um, by February the 6th, Joe Root had already scored over 100 more runs than any other England player would manage in the course of the <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just horrendous, isn't it? Yeah. That is horrendous. Um, oh. There, there was some, we've talked about bad batting, but there were some truly brilliant displays of bowling at various points in this test match. I thought Cummins' opening spell on day one was epic. Uh, Stark's new ball burst on the second evening was thrilling. Um, you can find fault in England's batters as much as we want, but that, that was really exceptional. According to Crickbiz, no new ball five-over spell since 2006 has provided more expected wickets on their shiny new, new tool um, as, as Cummins and Stark yeah. there. I think that was actually my favourite bit of actual cricket in the series. You know, you have these two world-class quicks charging in uh, in that mini session and then getting everything. The crowd was well-oiled. Batting was as tough as it was probably at any point in the test match. Um, and the, the noise of that start capturing ball was incredible and really just playing and missing. <laughs> um, that was brilliant. And, uh, well, we've got this guy in the pod and we've not really mentioned Scott Boland on debut, 32-year-old uh, who takes six for seven on the final day, and it's an amazing story as well. He was um, the player of the match at the Boxing Day test. And these days, the player of the match at the Boxing Day test, test is awarded the, the Muller Medal in memory of Johnny Muller, uh, a leading player on the 1868 Indigenous Tour of England. And 153 years later, the second recipient of that medal is Scott Boland, the second Indigenous Australian to play men's test cricket for Australia. Um, I thought, in and amongst uh, the horror from an English point of view, that was... Uh, there was some really good cricket in there for a start, and B, 
an amazing story and just seeing how happy he was and how happy the MCG crowd was for him as well. Yeah, it was, it was stunning to hear the, the noise every time he went anywhere near the ball. Um, and yeah, well, he might stop Dizzy going on about his double hundred in Bangladesh now. <laughs> no, I love you, Diz. Um, yeah, extraordinary. I mean, one of the conversation pieces as we were all trying to kind of talk ourselves into a state of, no, it's going to be okay before the series started, was that, um, you know, wow, Australia's um, fast bowling resources are not, as, are not as deep as ours, et cetera, et cetera. But they've had two guys make debuts in the last two tests and take five was in both, and Richardson and Boland. Um, and, you know, Boland, it was another, I can't remember who the tweet was from now. I'll see if I can find it. But it was, it was superb. Somebody saying, somebody amusing that it was... Um, <clears throat> Very clever of Australia to rest Scott Boland for the first 12 years of his career, just <laughs> so that he was so that he was fresh for the uh, fresh for the Test match. Yeah. Um, apologies to uh, to whoever whoever that was. That, I think that was, far, off, it was, was it? Yeah, it was, I mean, you know, and and it was, <laughs> Cummins is Cummins is thrilling, isn't it? He's just he's just an incredible um, quick bowler. It, it must have must have been a little bit like what it was like to have um, Lily running in at you back in the old days, you know, just somebody who's, who's a master um, of, of his craft and, and is quick enough to, to fill you in as well, which is not very pleasant. Um, and of course, you know, again, another talking point before the series was Mitch Stark. Oh, he's all over the place. Warney didn't want him to play, all this kind of stuff. And he's got, what is he, 15, 14 wickets at, at 13, 14 or something. He's, he's looked absolutely world-beating. So, um, yeah, I mean, they, they've been super. And they've all, you know, 267 they scored and won by an innings. 267. Um, and they had to fight pretty hard to get those, to be fair. I mean, that's, that's kind of the difference, isn't it? England have got some, you know, a world-class bowler in their lineup. Mark Wood charged in and, and you know, a lot of runs went down a third man off him. Uh, but, uh, but, but Jimmy, was, Jimmy was epic. But that somehow they managed to fight that through and get themselves to a score which... You know, well, it shouldn't have been an innings-winning score, but was was certainly um, was certainly par on in the conditions that we saw. Yeah, so I guess that's one positive for England. It looks like they've found a bowler who can, they can rely on for the next tour of Australia. Um, four for thirty. What, Jimmy Anderson. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Three off uh, twenty-three overs in that Australia innings. Um, got got a stat for you. Uh, over the last seven years, Anderson has taken one hundred and seven wickets away from home at an average of twenty-three point three five. Nobody in the world, seamer or spinner, has taken more wickets at a lower average than Anderson away from home in that period. In the 12 away series Anderson has taken part in since the start of 2015, he's averaged under 30 in nine of the 12 and averaged under 20 in six of the 12. In 2021, he averages less than 13 with the ball in away tests. Um, Phil, you said you watched that Anderson spell on day two and you were, you were mesmerised by it like everyone else. Uh, six overs, one for one, um, could have had three or four. I mean, it kind of embarrassed Marcus Harris every other minute, um, became laughable towards the end. It was absolutely astonishing, really. Um, uh, but of course, it's all, all sort of heavy with, with sadness, isn't it? Because even this kind of anatomical freak can't go on forever, although he'll probably be convincing himself that, that he's just, just reaching his peak now. Um, but it, it, it was, you know, it was it was a diamond in the rough, and and Mark Wood as well when he's played um, uh, has also turned up again as as a top as a quality Test match seamer. You know, he's, he cleaned up 
Steve Smith, and he cleaned up Marlis Labashain for early for low scores in both Test matches that he's played. Um, so yeah, yeah. Look, tiny little crumbs of comfort. I thought they fought well actually on day two. The pride that we talk of in inverted commas it's a kind of naff sporting trope, I suppose. But you could definitely get that sense on that second day. They caught pretty well as well. Um, I, I wonder, Mark, you might be able to help me out. What what do you think the the atmosphere will be like? in the England dressing room now between the bowlers and the batters, right? Do you, do you, and, and, and generally as well, do you think that it will be mutinous? Do you think that there will be fighting, scrapping, verbally at least, uh, behind the scenes? Do you think that animosity levels will be creeping up? Or do you think there'll still be a kind of sense of, look, we're doing what we can, we're just not, not very good? No, have you I, been there I, yourself? I, I, like? Yeah, I have. I think I think Jimmy's Jimmy's levels of snark will have will have reached um, you know sort of epic Blade Runner twenty forty nine proportions. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I just don't see I don't see that there are any of those types of characters in the it, it, with, with the exception of, of of Jimmy and Stuart to a lesser extent. I mean, I think we, we think we need to talk seriously about um, about Stuart's sort of ongoing England career. Because, um, so, and sorry, I'll get back to this in a second because this has been burning my, my backside. Australia have had to use bowlers, backup bowlers, because through circumstances. There's obviously the COVID positive um, or whatever it was, the COVID um, close contact for the, for the captain of the second test match um, that meant that, uh, you know, the Jai Richardson played or whatever. Then obviously Hazelwood's injury, et cetera, um, for this one. Australia bring in their resources when they when they need to use them, either because of because of lack of form or because of injury. You don't start off a series thinking about leaving out players because you're going to rotate them sometime later down the line. I mean, this is another reason why the, the sort of like the, the, the whole management, the thinking is completely and utterly muddled. This is the ashes. It's not some kind of warm up for for another series that's coming along, as we seem to treat all of the other ones over the course of the of our summer. Um, New Zealand, hello. Um, and so, you know, you go, into, you go into your test matches, you go into your, your big, big contests playing what, what you think your best team is and you change it given terrible, terrible form or injury to these players. You know, you're not thinking about sort of how much of a workload they're going to have before they've even set foot on the field. You know, and, and, it, and it's that kind of muddled nonsense thinking yes covid has played a part in all of this sort of stuff but if you're not going to try and get your very very best 11 people you think are your best team on the field for five test matches in a row in australia from the start then you've got no chance yeah these these things should only things should only change when they have to be changed Mm. not you know you know it just it blows your mind this sort of like the management calls um have been have been so off the mark and that's before you even get down to the to what the batters are doing. And yeah, there is going to be some animosity between the batters and bowlers. Of course there will be. Of course there will be. Jimmy Anderson having to be back out there on the field again, batting for, you know, batting to save, well, I don't know, don't save what, I don't know. But he's back out there in the middle again. I wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised if the Australians kind of like get, gave him a guard of honour just wandering back out there again so soon. I mean, he just taking my boots off, lads. I'm out here batting again. What the hell is wrong with you? Um, it, it doesn't do much for morale, it has to be said. Um, yeah, m- moving on to management then. Um, Michael asks, can Chris Silverwood survive this? Um, surely not, he says. Further to this, 
surely we must look to split the coaching job between test team and limited overs. Someone dedicated to the test side is needed without distraction of ODI T20 series. That's something we talked about on the on the show before. Um, Phil, yeah, what, what's your take on on the leadership duo of Silverwood and Root? I think people are broadly in agreement that that Silverwood probably won't won't last this. Uh, he gave an interview today that's been much um, criticised, where he basically said uh, it was it was all broadly fair enough before he said that there there are positives that we'll take out of this, which is just you know, completely misreading the room. So yeah, Phil, what, what do you think about not only Silverwood but but Root as skipper as well? Um, I, I don't think Silverwood will last much longer in the job. Um, that's my prediction. Uh, I think there will be a clamour for a more technical-minded coach, uh, probably somebody from overseas, um, somebody with a proven record, and somebody who is available. The question will be, are they affordable? Um, Gary Kirsten should have got the job I felt at the time I'm not being wise after the event I thought he was the outstanding candidate and he said himself in an interview with our magazine but also with other other outlets that he thought he'd given a very good interview he was quietly confident that he was certainly a key part of the conversation Um, and when they when they plumped for Silverwood it felt at the time like an underwhelming appointment. He'd done well at Essex, um, albeit over a short space of time, but he'd done really well at Essex, no question. Um, he was England's bowling coach, and then suddenly he was England's head coach, and it was a meteoric rise for a very likeable bloke. But um, if we are a- acknowledging that big, hard decisions have to have been taken and big, difficult conversations need to have been had, uh, and a little bit more of that kind of Owen Morgan um, uh, cussedness or stubbornness or refusal to back down and to get what he needed to get that job done. I'm not sure if Chris Silverwood is, is that kind of character to challenge his bosses um, mm-hmm. in the way that I'm not sure that Joe is by nature that kind of character either. Yeah. Um, Joe was born to bat. Owen Morgan was born to get his own way. Uh, on, on Silverwood... Um, it would be it would be a sad, sad day to see the bloke go because he's he's very popular, which is which is a key part of the job. Um, but then, of course, he's been given too much responsibility anyway, as we know, and it's a ludicrous um, setup that they currently have. Uh, it's possible they could remove him from the head coach role, but keep him on in some kind of selection role, possibly. Although that would feel like a fudge. Uh, but I have to be honest, you know. And if you want to clip this and stick it online and then I get a load of grief for it, I would, I would love to see Gary Kirsten in, in, in place. I interviewed him a few weeks ago. He's, um, he's still very much involved in the game. Let's put it that way. Uh, and his record at international level is outstanding. He took, he took India to world champions. He took South Africa to number one in the world in the test stuff as well. Uh, and he was up for the job three years ago. Um, and from our conversation, I certainly got the distinct impression he'd be up for it again. Mm. I, guess, I guess talking about the coach is more straightforward than, than the captain here. Um, for, for a captain, you need someone in the team. And there's no... Butch, you said earlier in the show that England need giants, people who are going to stand up to the big people at ECB and demand what English test cricket needs. Yeah. Who's that person in the England team that's going to do that? I mean, a lot of people like Ben Stokes, the leader, but 
to be honest, I think he's a leader in how he conducts himself on the cricket field. But is he going to? He's, he's been so close to the root leadership era that I'm not sure you're going to get anything distinctly different there. He's someone who yeah. obviously plays loads of white ball cricket as well. So you possibly are going to get someone who's going to be completely devoted to test cricket in the way you want your test cap to be. So that, that's a really difficult one because it, it's widely agreed that captaincy doesn't come that naturally to root. So if we think that root isn't the person to take um, the, the job on in the future, I'm not really sure who it is. No, and you're right. Um, I, because I knew you were going to ask me this. I've sort of been racking my brains to think who, who that person might be to replace him. Um, you know, he's, he's now lost, what, three, three Ashes series on the bounce? Well, I suppose lost the Ashes three times on the bounce, I should say, because they, they drew, in, uh, drew at home in 2019. Um, his, his sort of his decision-making. And, and again, you know, I suppose you look at that and go, well, the, the sort of the big, the big headline decisions of either selection or what to do at the toss are things that are, are made um, by committee, I suppose, in, in modern-day test matches. So it's not entirely his fault that those were also <laughs> painfully wrong at the beginning of the series. Um, but you're right. There isn't anybody else. Ben Stokes, no, I wouldn't give it to him at all. Um, that's a, another responsibility that, that he simply does not need. And, and you're right. He, he leads by deed rather than by, uh, by rote, by, um, in a very similar sort of way to, to what happened to, to Freddie when he was given a captaincy. It was just, it was just a, a bridge too far for him. Um, and there isn't, you know, the only other sort of first must pick in the team is 39 years old. Mm. Um, and has had no, you know, and, and, and has no aspirations whatsoever to uh, to captain the team. So I cannot answer that question, which is why you know the, the Silverwood position becomes so much more important. Um, again, I completely agree with Phil, and, I, and I'm on the record saying this at the time that the, the, the amalgamation of selector, head coach, and everything is absolute nonsense. Should never ever have happened. It's a disgraceful decision. I don't know who made it. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it should never, ever happen again. That needs to be separated um, always. Uh, so that's that. Uh, and, and I think that there are, there are lots of candidates, um, being, being one of them, um, around the world who could come along and actually be, and be that guy. I mean, one of the great things about Duncan Fletcher um, back, in, back in the day was that he was from outside. He was from outside the system. He could look at it without any vested interest, I suppose, and come in and go, all right, well, this is what, this, if, if we don't do it like this, then I'm off. I'm not doing it. Um, give me, I need, I need the best chance, what's the best chance I can possibly have of making this succeed. Um, and therefore I need X, Y, and Z to happen in terms of the, the way that the players are not prepared in the first class game. I need um, these type of players. I need quick bowlers. I need, I need spin to play a major part in what we do. Um, and I need batters with, with, a, with a bit of technique and a bit of ticker. Um, create me a system where that happens or I'm not doing the job. Um, and at the moment, you know, Chris Silverwood is, has, no, has no standing um, to be able to demand that from the people, the, from the people that hire him. Mm. Um, it's almost as though, he, you know, because, because of the fact that he has all of these other roles, because of the fact that he has now been made um, indispensable in, uh, in, in inverted commas, um, that, uh, that, that, he, that demanding things of the people that have given him this exalted position becomes very, very difficult. Mm. On, on the captaincy, uh, I did say this two years ago, but I don't think it could happen now. Uh, I thought, when, so when England lost in South Africa, the first Test match in South Africa in 2019-20, uh, mm. the Centurion Test match, well, exactly two years ago this week, actually, it was a Boxing Day test. 
Um, and it looked like Root's position was it was it was it was in question at, at least. I thought Broad would have been quite a good short-term appointment at that time. He was still definitely in the team. Um, he just come off the 2019 Ashes. He's someone who only plays Test cricket, not involved in the White yeah. as well. Definitely has strong opinions on how things should be run. He sees yeah. close, close at close hand how a uh, Test side has got to number one in the world. He knows what it takes. I think two years ago that would have been quite a shrewd appointment. Um, but at 35, he's not in the team. Yeah. Under you know, can you can you see him staying in the team even if he if he does play the first Test in West Indies? Can you stay? Can you see him staying in the team for two years? Probably not at this stage. So completely out of options. Stuart is Stuart is still a fantastic bowler, and and all of those things ring true in terms of his um, in terms of his standing in the game, in terms of his his thoughtfulness about about the game and his knowledge of how of, of how things should be done. Um, but again, I go back to the idea that if, if you go on a trip with two guys who have over 1,300 test match wickets between them and your first thought is, well, I can't play both of them at the same time, then one of them shouldn't be there. Do you know what I mean? If, they, if they're not, not going to be in your best bowling attack for, for whatever reason, I, and, and you know, I, I'm not privy to the conversations, but if you think that your best way of being able to win an Ashes series is by not having those two guys play together, then one of them shouldn't be there. Mm. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's kind of like you, if they're not your, if this isn't your best bowling attack, and you make changes based upon, um, based upon injury or loss of form, then what the hell are they doing there? What the hell is he doing there? He's wasting his time. He could be make, you know, making a fortune telling telling everybody how to do it on the telly instead. Um, do you know what I mean? So it, it, you're right. His his time his time has has, has come and gone. Um, you know what this whole thing's reminded me of is a little bit of the sort of the way that the West Indies sort of dribbled out of the um, out of the nineties, I suppose, with Lara holding up one end um, as, as sort of a captain who was who was unpopular as captain, whether that's just inter inter Ireland or whatever, or wasn't perhaps the most astute guy on the field, um, but was the best player. And Courtney Walsh holding things together with the ball and the team lurching from one miserable series to another albeit with the odd glory, bit of glory knocked in, there, knocked in there as well. And this kind of, this whole thing with England reminds me of exactly the same. Joe Root is Lara. Jimmy Anderson is Courtney Walsh. And the, and the team around them generally is, 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 is not very good, um, mm. or at least not performing particularly well. But I, I, mate, I cannot answer the question around the captaincy, which, make, which makes the whole thing around, which makes Silverwood the man who is absolutely in the, in the, uh, in the crosshairs. I would say to, to Joe... At the end of this series, um, don't do West Indies unless you really, really deeply want to. Um, take yourself away for a bit. Uh, have a few conversations with people who you trust. Uh, put the bat down for a moment. Go on holiday. Just try and try and decompress a little bit, and then have a conversation after the West Indies series. Because I don't see any obvious alternative candidate, and I think with with Root while. Clearly, we see that there are tactical deficiencies, no question about that. Um, you know, Jack Leach opens the bowling straight after lunch on day two, and there's, you know, four men on the on the leg side boundary straight away and all of that. We, we've seen some peculiar selections. We've seen some peculiar decisions on the pitch. Um, one thing he does have is immense respect and immense likability within the dressing room, which, which goes a long way. Um, and in the absence of any obvious alternative candidates... Rory Burns doesn't know if he's going to get in the side. Josh Butler probably 
Test match cricket in in a couple of weeks anyway. And Ben Stokes has, has got loads and loads on his plate. Stuart Broad, I get it. But as Mark says rightly, his time has gone, probably, almost certainly. So there really aren't any other candidates. Mm. Uh, and so and so I, I would let let Root... I wouldn't put a line through Joe Root as a captain yet. I, would, I just wouldn't. But if he can't face it anymore, as, say, Cook couldn't... Famously, Cook said, you know, only so many times I can go to the well. And he jacked it in after another reversal. That one was in India, but he, he jacked it in after fewer test matches in charge than Joe has had at a similar age in his test match career. So if Joe turned around at the end of Hobart and said, I, I'm, this is me done, no one would um, question it. But I think in the complete absence of alternatives, I would hesitate to say, right, you're, you're, the Joe Root era is finished. Mm. Because I know that's a, that's a you know, it's not an answer that, works well for headlines but I mean my word if there was another big player in that side that didn't happen to be carrying all the load that Ben Stokes is if there was another real thinker with a bit of balls a bit of that bit of arrogance as well you know that kind of that Owen Morgan-esque I'm not taking any nonsense that kind of character if there was one in the side who was assured, assured of his place then yeah for sure and Joe would probably say Here's the armband. Thanks very much. Um, but where is where is that person? I guess, I guess go back to 2016. It was it was it was much easier for Cook to resign then, knowing that there was this next man in waiting, somebody who'd been earmarked as a future England captain since he first played for England as a 21 year old. Moving on to uh, so the last question, I promise. Um, uh, Luke asked, it's quite clear that the test team is in need of reform as part of the rebuilding process. What should England do the test series against West Indies in the spring? I think that's a really interesting question just because there's no first-class cricket in between the end of this tour and the start of the next one. You, you, you're going to have uh, you know, a, a number of battles, three, four, five, six of them maybe, who uh, are going to be so out of nick with, with numbers that are, are genuinely horrifying for a test, for a test batter to, to look back on. Um, so what do England do? Because you, you go through some of the selections England have made and we've not really debated selections that much this series. We're broadly in agreement this is the best group that England have avail available to them, pretty much. Um, you look at some of the selections like Hamid. Hamid basically was only picked. It's a great story and all that, don't get me wrong. But there was, there was basically no one else. There was no one who was clearly the next option to open the batting in county cricket. You know, Sibley had been dropped... Crawley was really struggling. James Bracey played two test matches and struggled. There was no one banging down the door in county cricket. So what, what do England do now uh, moving forward in the, in the short term? How, how would you go about selecting squads for those series? Do you, would you by and large pick the same group of players? or um, are there... I, 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 Just briefly, um, I would treat this upcoming series against West Indies as an opportunity to try and rebuild a little bit of love between the England side and, and the punters. Um, and if that needs a quiet word in the ear of Joss Butler, Johnny Bairstow, Joe Root, even Ben Stokes, um, and say, look, I'm not saying that your career is done, but for the moment, let's just park this winter. Go away, get your head together, and we'll pick things up in April for the start of the English series, English summer. Um, and I would be tempted to, to live a little with the batting, to live a little, to have a look at Liam Livingston, to have a look at Joe Clark, to bring in, you know, another opening bat who's, who, who maybe has something a little bit unusual. Someone like Vasconcellos, for example, who's got real talent, 
plays it, plays it in his own way. Someone like Jake Libby. I'm not saying that these are the answers, but what, you, what we desperately need now is an infusion of sort of shaky optimism to try and get a few people back on side. Because if we turn up there with the, the, same, the same old faces who are tired and fed up and not enjoying it, and they have their eyes elsewhere anyway, and they're mentally shot from what they've had to go through just now, then far, far more interesting and far more useful, I think, in the long term to have a look at one or two others. Give Dan Lawrence a game in the middle order alongside Liam Livingston. Why not? Why not? Butch? <laughs> oh, jeez. Well, I think you've got to find a couple of, couple of players of real character. You've got to make a decision about, decision about somebody like Rory Burns. I mean, what the players can do in between the end of the Ashes series and, and the beginning of beginning of the test matches in, in the West Indies is go and do enormous amount of work, of technical work. You know, one of the beauties of having that bit of time off is that you can get, you get, lock yourself in the, in the indoor school. I know, you know, conditions are not, it's not outdoors, but you don't need outdoors to be able to work on the way that your body moves, your position, your back lift, um, your, your weight transference, all of these things. And take the time to work on technique without having to worry about the scoring of runs. Um, and so, you know, that I wouldn't necessarily be discarding everybody that's on this trip. Um, you know, it, I might, it might be nice to see um, who's the young fella, the left-hander. Um, oh, Yates. good gracious. Left-hander from Warwickshire. Yates. Yeah, Rob, I, he really impressed me last year. You've also got, you know, I, I, one of the things I liked about the selection of David Milan was the fact that you've got somebody who is, who is a little bit older. I mean, I think we get, we get so seduced by the idea of youth and guys making their, making their way in the game. But I wouldn't mind seeing England picking a couple of, couple of guys who are in their 28, 29, 30, the prime of their career as county run scorers and getting, out, getting them out there and trying to create a little bit like what NASA did um, at the end, at the, you know, the beginning of the 2000s, leading up to that 2005 series was put together a bunch of hard-nosed bastards who will go out there and grind out runs at whatever scoring rate you want, give the bowlers a chance to be able to go out there and take 20 wickets, and build confidence by, by, by scoring big runs and winning test matches. I, I kind of, I, I know what Phil's saying, but I don't agree with kind of like lobbing in a load of, <clears throat> a load of kids um, and potentially having the, the losses rack up and continue because losses create conversations like the ones we're having. And create, um, you know, the, the, the idea that if there's a revolving door of selection. You need to stabilise. You need mm. to stabilise and then bring talented youngsters in, in, into a team that knows what it's doing. You don't throw, don't throw them to the walls in a team. It's a little bit like, uh, how, how do I put it? It's a little bit like, um, you know, you have, uh, you, you, you pick a sort of like a talented, you know, a talented sort of t uh, team full of kids, 18, 19 years of, years of age, um, at second team level or whatever, they're all the same age. They're all out of out, out of school. They've all played together, etc. They go and play against sort of opposition who is a little bit more um, road worn, a little bit more hard nosed, and they lose. And they keep losing. They've got nobody to learn from in their in the eleven with them because they're all of the same sort of experience. And therefore, you know, their confidence and their skill and their sort of bravado eventually gets chiseled away to a point where they're no good, where they where they're gone. They're shot to bits. Um, and I, what I don't think that England needs is to send out a bunch of ingenues to the West Indies. Imagine we get beat by them. 
away from home. And we, we haven't won a series in the West Indies since 2004. Going down there and winning is not something that's straightforward, by the way. And so you need to treat that with the respect that they deserve and Test Match Cricket deserves. Take a team down there that you think is going to win. So I want to see, I wouldn't mind seeing somebody like Sam Robson maybe have another go, even if it means bring back Adam Lythe. Get some guys in there who've got a little bit of, you know, who have had a taste of it before, had it taken away from them. Um, and, and a kind of like a, a gritty, a, a, a desperate to kind of have another shot at it. And then maybe once the whole thing is stabilised, you can think about throwing in some of the, some of the gun youngsters. And in the midst of that, I don't mind if, so, you know, I don't mind if Liam Livingston gets a go playing test match cricket batting at number five or number six. You have a bit of X factor thrown in there. I want to see Ben Folkes back in the team, keeping wicket batting seven. You know, I, you know that, this, yeah. all so, the, that, that's, that's, you know, that's how I would go about it. I would be, I would be very, very nervous about going here. Yeah, there's a bunch of 22, 23 year olds with, with potential go out there and, and, and do better than, than the guys who have tried to do it on potential before. Because I don't think that's going to work. Mm. I, I get that. I get that. But then it, you, you look at the story of Joss Butler at the moment. You look at the story of Johnny Bairstow at the moment. They are both big personalities in that dressing room. They are part of the inner, inner sanctum. Um, and they're hating life. They can't stand it. Joss Butler will definitely be considering his test match future for sure. Well, I, I mean, I wouldn't... I wouldn't Johnny Bairstow has scored a run in three or four years. No, you know? I, wouldn't, I wouldn't pick him for the West Indies. I just said I want, I want, I'd want. like to see Ben Folks play. And, and I don't think that's, that's, that's not a selection based around, you know, a, a wing and a prayer. This is a guy who's, a, who's a, you know, he's one of the best keepers around and is a, is a, solid, a solid, solid player with the bat. Technically decent player with the bat. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's not a, that's not rip it all up and start again. That's somebody that's been unfortunate not to have played more test matches over the last, uh, over the last uh, 12 months for one reason or another, whether that be, um, you know, he, he had a terrible injury or whatever. So that, I don't, I don't see a problem with that. I don't, and Johnny Bairstow, I don't see an issue with, but again, is Johnny Bairstow, is Johnny Bairstow not sort of used up um, whatever the currency might be? Mm. Uh, you know, we're talking about players with sort of fun, with weird, quirky techniques, and, you, and all of it, and sort of saying, you know, the basic basic tenets of batting have been moved moved away from to such an extent that it's unrecognisable now. And now you're talking, you know, Dan Lawrence wobbling around all over the place, batting at five. You want um, who was it you mentioned batting at the top of the order? Vasconcelos. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, he actually, I think he's a decent player. I don't think he has a quirky technique, to be honest. He's just a, you know, a little short nuggety left hander. Reminds me a bit of Thorpey. Um, so I mean, he, that's not a bad, that's not a terrible shout at all. No, but if if you if you send if you send out there a, a bunch of guys, you know, a top six. Um, if you include Joe, a top six who have got, I don't know, what's how many Test matches Joe played now? Ninety eight, ninety coming up for a hundred. twenty. Right. Okay. So so, but a top six that 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 has a hundred and thirty caps with Joe Root having hundred and twenty of them. What's your likelihood of being successful under that? And you end up with the same situation where you're relying on Root to score all the runs. I think that's. I don't think that's the way to do it. I like how um, we spent nearly an hour and a half talking about this, and we pretty much agreed that Adam Lyde and Sam Robson are the future of English batting. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I don't, see, look, the thing is, I don't. It doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter who. Um, it, it, in in many respects, it, what it matters is have these guys got the sort of like are they up for the fight? Do they have the sort of like the the, the nous and the grizzled, gnarled um, uh, capability to go out there and turn this thing around? Um, and again, there has to be a starting point from somewhere. And yes, the, ideally, you'd want all of these young chargers to be out there and playing with gay abandon. 
but this is not a time for gay abandon. It really, it really is not. But it is a time to find some alternatives uh, when almost to a man, the people that have been blooded in the last two or three years are just not delivering, are they? Well, you know, I, no, I mean, that, but that's, that's Burns, what I'm Burns saying. Burns is, is the third most experienced player in the side um, mm. uh, with the bat, and he averages 27, 28, and, and, and his, his concern uh-huh. are, are all to see. You know, yes, but what I'm, Steve, what I'm, bless him, has made 50 I'm, runs in three test matches. Zach Crawley's averaged 11. So all of these kind of... But what I'm saying is, is you don't replace, you don't replace a, lot of, a lot of players who are failing at that level, right? Some of whom, i.e. Rory Burns, have been very, very successful in, a, in, a, in an era where batters haven't been scoring any runs. Ollie Pope's another one who's been incredibly successful in an era where nobody else scores any. Um, you know, so what you're talking about is replacing these guys who have been very successful at county level with guys who are less successful at county level and are perhaps more flaky than they are in terms of their technique. What I'm saying is, if you're going to replace them, replace them with some guys who have been around for a little bit longer and might be able to handle themselves a little bit better at the level in order to stop the bleeding. Um, you can end up, you know, if, going back to myself, I went in two, uh, 2001, I got back into the test side. I didn't miss a test match for three years. And so 2001, I was, what, 29. And so the, 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 the um, you know, probably the prime era, prime time of my career, I played, 40 test matches back to back for England in that time, right? And that's, you know, I had a chance at the age 24 and I wasn't good enough then. And there's, there's some other fellas who are playing county cricket at the moment who are in a similar boat. They had a chance at age earlier, got found wanting, got left out, have had a chance to go away and mature and do the rest of it and come back in. It's no disgrace to be picking people who have had a chance, who have had a go before. I'm not saying that, that you do that as a wholesale, but I wouldn't mind seeing one or, one or two of them knocking around the squad so that kids have got some people who have got, who've got mountains of runs and experience behind them as opposed to looking around and going, well, who do I, who do I talk to about this? Mm. We can't all be sat there in Joe Root's room every night. I think we've been talking for about an hour and a half on why England can't bat. I hope that's answered your questions sufficiently <laughs> enough. Um, cheers, Butch. Cheers, Phil. Uh, this has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast in association with Charles Tirrett. Remember, you can get an extra 10% off the Charles Tirrett sale with the code Wisdom10. See you next time. Sports Social Podcast Network.